Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm excited because we're talking about one of my favorite things today. It is. It's an invention that I love and owe a great deal of um, gratitude to all as, of the people involved. As do I. Not maybe to quite the extent that you do, but I also am quite fond of what we're talking about today, which is the sewing machine. Yes. You sew extensively. Every day. And I do not <laughs> sew extensively. <laughs> Uh, but I do know how to sew, and I have wonderful, fond memories of my mother. Mostly they're fond. Sometimes they're frustrated, but mostly they're fond of my mother teaching me how to sew when I was a child. Oh, yeah. My mom didn't teach me. No. She sewed like a fiend. Uh, just about everybody in my family does, but I was one of those uh, people that did not want someone over my shoulder telling me what to do. So she gave me tools, and I learned a lot by making a lot of mistakes, but I still love it, and I literally do sew just about every single day. That's awesome. It's part of my, you know, my life stability thing to get at least a few seams in each day. And the invention of the sewing machine is actually a pretty interesting story. It involves a lot more fighting and anger than you might suspect, since we think about sewing as kind of a nice, quiet activity. But it's uh, the invention of the machines that allow us to do it. Not so quiet or delightful or peaceful. Not really. Uh, if you watch Schoolhouse Rock growing up, you probably know about Elias Howe in a very, you know, punctuated short version of yes. the story. In the, that's in the Mother Necessity song. Yeah, if I love you it. you are wondering. I love it. But there are actually a lot of different people in the mix when it comes to who actually invented the sewing machine, even though Howe does generally get most of the credit in history. And there are reasons for that, which we'll talk about. But the patent battle that went on in the U.S. Uh, about who got the rights to it is like tabloid fodder. And it kind of did play out in some ways in the papers and magazines of the day, almost in the way that tabloids show, you know, celebrity arguments now. It's pretty fascinating. So prior to sewing machines, of course, the very earliest way people were sewing was to use a sharpened bone or stick and punch holes in whatever their fabric was, normally leather, to pass a lacing through. Right. And so the, the, the stick or the bone would go through it all the way, and then you would lace. Well, or you could just punch it. Or you could punch it. Yeah, um, but it, it wasn't... Like an all-type situation. Right. It, it wasn't like what happened later. No, Which not is at when all. needles got eyes in them that you could actually put your lacing through. Yes. And draw the lacing through along with the needle. Yeah, which was, you know, a huge step forward in, in making sewing uh, more easy and quicker. And then as needles got refined and could be made smaller and smaller out of metal... A whole, you know, new form of art was born in the form of embroidery. Uh, but getting to the sewing machine is kind of an interesting trail because it was right in step with the Industrial Re- Revolution for good reason. As textile manufacture became uh, more streamlined, less expensive, people had access to more cloth. So they wanted to make more things, but they needed to be able to do so more quickly as well. So... In 1755, Charles Weisenthal patented a needle for a sewing machine. The machine never came to fruition, but the needle was interesting because it had points on each end and an eye in the middle. And it kind of passed back and forth through the fabric and carried that um, the thread with it to make sort of a... Um, a stitch that kind of replicated what human hands could do. Right. And, and a lot of the very 
first attempts to mechanize sewing were all about replicating what people do with their hands when they sew. Yes. And then in 1790 was the next uh, significant patent. There are many, many patents along the way that we're not going to mention because they're just literally too numerous. Right. It would become sort of a, a, a list. <laughs> it would be a list. And then in 1768. Uh, but so then Thomas Saint, who was an English cabinet maker, patented a machine. And I know you love the title of this I patent. I love it so, so much. I'm going to let you read it. An entire new method of making and completing shoes, boots, splatter dashes, clogs, and other articles by means of tools and machines, also invented by me for that purpose, and of certain compositions of the nature of Japan or varnish, which will be very advantageous in many useful applications. That is a really good blanket coverall title for it's, something that you're going to invent. Well, and you still see patent titles that are like that today, that are, the title is just so exceptionally broad. If, yeah. you're, if you're looking for patents for specific things, you have to develop some patent-searching mojo. Yes. And that is very much like that, <laughs> except that this one is particularly long and delightful. Well, and part of the reason is that Saint actually was describing three different machines in that patent. He really wasn't doing like a narrow patent. It was kind of like, I have all these good ideas... I'm going to patent them all at once. And so that's why they fall under one title. The second of those machines is actually for stitching. And uh, it wasn't really particularly practical, but it had several components that we would associate with modern sewing machines. It had a table where the cloth could feed through. It had an arm with a needle, and it had continuous thread feed from a spool. Now, no actual examples of Saint's machine have ever been found, but there was an Englishman in 1873 that found the plans for it and actually tried to build the machine. It wouldn't work quite right, uh, but he eventually did some tweaking and and made one that more or less worked. But that was another kind of big advancement in terms of adding in things that got retained in many for future models. Right. Some people have theorized that the, the Saint patent is on purpose a little bit wrong so that no one could steal his ideas, which is kind of, that's a common patent trickery. Yes. Uh, so that would explain why Newton Wilson, when he tried to rebuild his, just couldn't quite get it right without making his own tweaks. In 1804, Thomas Stone and James Henderson got a patent in France Their machine made an overcast stitch that's a lot like a hand stitch, like a whip stitch. Mm -hmm. So I was going to try to describe what that looks like and... And I was, it's going to be more confusing than if I just skipped that. It is. It's basically if you're stitching and your uh, thread comes, for example, up through the cloth and then around the the raw edge of the cloth and then back in underneath so that it makes kind of a spiral. Right. The, the example that I am immediately seeing in my mind is the way that Aragorn's sleeves are connected to his vest in his Lord of the Rings costume, like the primary one that he wears all through Fellowship of the Ring, which is actually something that the costume designers pointed out, that he could just whip his sleeves back on and then off if it got hot. So... Thomas Stone and James Henderson made a machine that would do that, uh, essentially. But there, since there wasn't a continuous feed on the thread, it was a stop-and-go process. Yes, yeah, so not quite ideal, but we're getting closer. Uh, and also in 1804, John Duncan of Glasgow patented an embroidery machine. And it didn't really function in the same way as a sewing machine for joining fabric. But it did introduce an eye-pointed needle, which becomes really vital in successful sewing machines in the future. So... For a visual, an eye-pointed needle is one where the hole for the thread is in the same end as the point, the sharp point of it. 
Right, which is the opposite of how most hand-sewing needles work. And that eye-pointed needle comes up in a, I don't want to characterize it as false, but there is an account that comes up later in the, as things really get heated up, where one inventor claims that he had a vision for this and it's it's not always it's not substantiated in any way and it's kind of bizarre we'll give a brief mention of it but this is important again john duncan in 1804 with the eye point and needle yes so then in 1807 edward walter chapman and walter chapman received a british patent for a machine that was the first that did not require the needle to pass all the way through the fabric and this is uh, a significant development because again that's something that still holds true in sewing machines today but at the time theirs was the first that didn't kind of mimic hand stitching and that the needle went all the way through one side and out the other yes instead it sort of poked down and then it did not pass all the way through and come out the other side. Like the, the point of it goes all the way down, but the whole needle doesn't pass all the way through. If you, if you haven't really watched a sewing machine work, <laughs> uh, that might not be a thing that you would visualize immediately. But in a, in a sewing machine today, the needle kind of dips down and then out instead of going all the way through and coming completely out the other side. Yeah. And it had two needles and the thread actually got passed between them in a really sort of arduous re-threading technique. And it was only intended to sew things like belting and ropes together. It wasn't good for joining two fabrics together for garments because it really did take quite a long time. It would take you almost as long as just hand stitching it. Uh, but the idea of the needle not passing all the way through is important. In 1830, Barthelemy Tenemanier was a French tailor and his machine created a chain stitch. It was the first machine to be produced in a quantity, and he had 80 machines that worked in a shop in Paris within 10 years. Uh, People were not super happy, especially tailors. Tailors who had been making their living by sewing things by hand were afraid that this machine was going to take away their livelihood. And so a mob of angry tailors broke into the shop and destroyed all of the machines. And Timonier was forced to flee but he did eventually obtain financial backing to continue the development of his work. Um, and in, despite great advancements in speed and the acquisition of three new patents, he ended up holding two patents in France and one in Britain. The French Revolution kind of stalled his efforts and really robbed him of what could have been a legacy in the sewing machine trade. Uh, but then... In 1832 to 1834, uh, there's a really important development in America, which is that Walter Hunt created a machine that made a lock stitch and used two thread sources, similar to like a spool and bobbin that we use today, uh, rather than the single thread chain stitch. And Hunt worked on a lot of inventions, and he didn't really see the sewing machine as going anywhere for him. He didn't think it was particularly important. So he sold it off without patenting it to a George A. Aerosmith. Uh, historians mark this design as the first time that machine development stopped being about replicating human hand stitching and actually just being its own thing and letting the mechanism kind of define the design of how it was going to do the stitching. But it could only do straight lines and it couldn't sew for a long continuous line. But Hunt's machine design sat dormant for a while, but Two decades later, Hunt is going to become a really major player in some of the legal battles that were going on. Right. Uh, one important thing to note right about this time is that the American records are a little foggy. Uh, the patent office had a fire in 1836 that destroyed a lot of records. So 
that was problematic in the legal battles that are to come. Yes. And there's, as a brief side note, a lot of what was destroyed was the descriptions of items. Like they still had lists of patents that existed and they actually put a call out to people that held patents and said, hey, send us a fresh description. We lost those records. But not many people answered. So there are a lot of inventions sitting in the legal record there that are it's just a title. We don't know what they were doing. Some of them were really simple, like specialty awls that were made for certain fabrics. But there's a lot of stuff that probably got lost along the way. Right. Well, and there were huge advancements in machinery happening mm-hmm. right at that time. So it's unfortunate that we have so few records of so many of them. And then in 1842, John J. Greenow, who was an American also, patented a machine that could make a running stitch and a back stitch. But no models other than the patent version were ever made. And his patent remains significant because it's recognized as the first American sewing machine patent. Because remember, Hunt didn't patent his invention, and apparently Aerosmith, who he sold it to, didn't patent it either, even though he had the rights at that point. Now... In 1843, Benjamin W. Bean was awarded the second U.S. sewing machine patent. Uh, His machine was different from the others because it fed the fabric through gears on the way through the machine. These are precursors to what's known as feed dogs today, which are these sort of toothy little things that are under the fabric that kind of nudge the fabric along under the presser foot, which is the thing that holds the fabric down while the needle does its work. Yes. his also had a clamp mechanism so that he could attach the sewing machine to a table. And then in later 1843, George H. Corliss, who you may recognize the name because he also invented the Corliss steam engine, invented a mechanism after examining split seams on a pair of boots. Uh, his machine was given the third sewing machine patent in the U.S., and it could perform what's called a saddler's stitch to join pieces of leather, which is a stitch that's still used in some machines today. Uh, but in 1844, he gave up on the machine because he couldn't get financial backing, and he was really more interested in his steam work at that point. Uh, a year later, James Rogers got the fourth U.S. sewing machine patent. He really only had one small change to the design that Bean had developed earlier, The gears were positioned a little differently to allow for a simpler needle shape. And later patents of beans used this same setup. And then we get to, like, the heavy hitter. Right. The star of the show. Yes. Elias Howe Jr. Uh, And he was born to a farming family in Spencer, Massachusetts in 1819. And he left home at 16 to make his way training as a machinist. And he eventually landed a job in Boston. And allegedly, he overheard a conversation in the instrument shop where he worked between two people regarding the need for a mechanized method for sewing. And that allegedly sparked him to work on a design of his own at one point when he was homesick from work and his brain was just going a little bit crazy being idle. There's also, this is where I'll mention that weird sort of rumory, legendy part of the story, which is that in some instances, how claims that he had a dream Involving like tribal chiefs. It's very um, interesting. There are actually a lot of online places where you can look at dream analysis of this dream uh, that led him to the use of the eye pointed needle for the machine. But we know it had already been in use. And in fact, he doesn't mention that in the patent or claim in his patent that he invented that. So it's kind of an interesting, weird side story. And it often gets told as, oh, the idea for the sewing machine came to him in a dream. But that's really oversimplified, and it's kind of 
taking the actual engineering part of it out of the equation, which isn't really smart to do. Right. I I usually take the it came to me in a dream inventor story Mm. with a grain of salt, because while it's completely feasible that as you're thinking on something, you may have sort of an epiphany on it while sleeping. Like it's usually presented as bolt from the blue out of nowhere suddenly had this dream which is not very likely and is more often just an attempt to mythologize where the thing came from. Exactly. And we know, I mean, we've been, you know, discussing all of these sort of small steps forward in sewing machine engineering that none of this just sprouted overnight. It was all, you know, a slow burn developmental process. Right. These things built on one another for a long time. But in September of 1846, Howe was granted the fifth U.S. patent, which was patent number 4750 for a sewing machine. And it was actually his second version of the sewing machine. His first prototype was working in 1845 and was used to sew seams on uh, at least two and possibly more men's suits that were made of wool. And House patent includes five very specific claims as to the working to those to his machine. And those came up later in court. Again, right. none of them mention a dream scenario where he <laughs> thought of how to make a needle work. No. And we're not going to read all five of them because it is kind of a lengthy description, but they basically cover... The forming of the seam, the lifting of the thread, holding the thread in place uh, by a shuttle, the way of arranging and combining levers with a sliding box, and holding the cloth to be sewed uh, into the machine. So these are sort of the five steps that his patent covered. And all of these are kind of interesting because most of them involve action created by the combination of other pieces. None of these say, I invented this piece or that piece. It's all pretty much focused on the engineering of how pieces came together. Right. His patent is very process-oriented rather than... Which is very important in later legal battles. Yes. But Howe tried for three years to get manufacturers interested in his design and willing to make it and really struggled. And eventually, with the help of his brother who he sent on ahead of him to England, they uh, sold the British patent rights to William Thomas for 250 British pounds sterling. And Howe actually went to Britain to work with Thomas and adapted the machine to make umbrellas and corsets, but that business deal did not prove to be especially profitable. Some accounts suggest that the relationship between Howe and Thomas got really, really uh, contentious and argumentative and that Thomas didn't really want to pay Howe as an employee, the salary that he had suggested he would pay once the uh, changes to the initial machine had been made. He was kind of done with him. So uh, there's a little bit of drama there. Now, But Howe decided to come back. But in the meantime, there's another development. In 1848, John A. Bradshaw was granted the sixth U.S. sewing machine patent. His design was focused on correcting errors in Howe's designs. And some of his language here is just a little insulting. He's, he's not very nice about it. Um, one of the things that happens in patent is uh, a thing called the, the prior art. And that's sort of a description of all the stuff that came before what you're patenting. And his would include language like, this is a very bungling device and is a great encumbrance to the action of the machine. Yeah, that was his description of Howe's needle design. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. So in 1849, Howe returned to the U.S. after leaving his British business endeavors and discovered that there was a lively sewing machine enterprise afoot. That in the time that he was gone, suddenly people went, oh, sewing machines are a great idea. We should be making and selling them. Uh, and there was even a machine which was which had the seventh U.S. patent based on Bradshaw, Bradshaw's design that was in production and being offered for sale. Uh, the patent went to Charles Morey and Joseph B. Johnson in 1849, but they were actually selling it even before the patent was granted and finalized. And before all of that, they were also featured in Scientific American, which was featuring a lot of articles about um, various machine developments, and sewing machines come up in it a lot. Then in mid-1849, Jotham S. Conant was issued a patent on a slightly modified version of the Morey-Johnson machine. His change had to do with the way that the cloth was held taut during stitching. If you don't hold your cloth with the right tension, your stitches are going to be all bunched up and yucky. So that's an important development. But it seems to have died on the vine. It didn't actually get into production. But on the very same day that the Conant patent was issued, John Batchelder was also given a patent for a model that featured a continuous sewing mechanism and an endless belt to feed cloth into the machine. And Batchelder sold that patent to I.M. Singer, to Isaac Singer, you'll know that name if you do any sewing, in the mid-1850s. And it actually became one of the most important elements of Singer's design. Yeah, I learned to sew on a Singer. I think most people did of our age. Well, and in addition to having learned to sew on a Singer, I know that both of my grandmothers had in their their uh, stuff that came with them when they got married Mm -hmm. and and established a household, treadle sewing machines that were Singer machines. I have a treadle singer that is from, I think, 1910. Yes. And it was in Brian's family from the day it was sold. Like, they purchased it and it's been handed down and came to me. Right. I'm very grateful for it. It needs some restoration, which is one of my side projects that I never get to. But I will eventually. So sadly, this thing that has quite fond memories for both of us is also where suddenly sewing machines become all kinds of contentious. Really, really argumentative things going on. So in 1850, uh, Alan B. Wilson was working on a lock stitch machine, which used a mechanism very, very similar to the modern machine. His mechanism could also stitch forward and backward, which was a first. Uh, and he applied for a patent after making a second prototype model, but he was contacted by the people who owned the Bradshaw patent from 1848 with a claim that they owned the concept of the double-pointed shuttle that made up part of his machine. And that claim was completely false. But Wilson couldn't afford to fight them, and he gave up half of his claim to A.P. Klein and Edward Lee in November of 1850. But after just a few months, he sold them the rest of his interest and retained only limited rights. And he pretty much got shafted in the deal. He never made any money off of it. He didn't even, I don't think, get full payment for all of the rights that he sold them. No, and his it was it was not true, their claim in the first place. Yeah, but he just didn't, you know, he was, uh, you know, relatively modest means inventor. He didn't, he couldn't fight a big business at that point. So he kind of found what seemed like the most equitable solution, which is to sell at that point. But they went on to pretty decent success with it, and they still used his names in the ads. They actually placed an ad in Scientific American in 1851 that said, A.B. Wilson's sewing machine, the best and only practical sewing machine, not larger than a lady's work box for the trifling sum of $35. Just, they're still making money off of his name, and he's just 
He's not involved anymore. Completely out of the loop and kind of mistreated at that point. Right. Elias Howe decided that he needed to protect his rights and royalties from all of these inventions that were being sold everywhere. Uh, and so if he could trace his roots back to his design, he went after them. Uh, before Howe's work, most machines were taking all kinds of different approaches to making stitches. But from Bradshaw on, most of the stitching processes were improvements on the design and his patents number 4750 or his patent number 4750 from 1846. So if he could trace work back to that, he would jump on it. Yes. And in 1850, after watching one of uh, Isaac Singer's sons perform a demonstration of their machine that they were selling, Howe contacted Singer about the infringement on his patent and eventually demanded $2,000 in royalty payment. And at the time, you know, the Singer family was just starting out selling sewing machines. They were like, we don't have that kind of money. Uh, and he came back later and was like, well, you're doing pretty well now and demanded a bigger sum. And then negotiations did not go well and got really ugly in a hurry. Singer physically threatened Elias Howe. Uh, and Singer was known for having a bit of a hot temper and doing some kind of unkind dealings and intimidation tactics when it came to his work with business partners. So between Howe, who felt very wronged at this point, and Singer, who was pretty aggressive, which paid off for him in many ways, it really got ugly in a hurry. But in 1852, Howe found a way to fight them, which is that he sold half of his interest in his patent to George Bliss, who manufactured machines that he billed as Howe's patent, but they actually had changed pretty significantly from Howe's original design. But even so, the money that Howe made from this partnership funded his patent lawsuits, of which there were many, and he really went after Singer with vigor. He did not like him. He sued other manufacturers, but the suit against Singer was the most combative. And uh, after a judgment, though, in Howe's favor in a suit that he had brought against uh, a group called Leroux and Blodgett, other firms started to settle because they kind of saw the turning of the tide and that probably other judgments were going to fall in Howe's favor. So a lot of firms were just like, how can we work this out out of court? Yeah, basically now that he had the money to do it, he was winning. Yes. Uh, in 1853, as suits were beginning to be settled, Howe started selling his royalty licenses. He sold them to a lot of different groups, um, al- along with his brother. Yeah. Uh, these licenses let manufacturers use any part of the Howe patent in their machines, and some of them were stamped with his name and patent information. Uh, some have been incorrectly identified as Howe's machines at- when they really weren't. And his brother, also manufacturing machines at this time, was pretty successful at it. So we're, we really have two big players at this point. Howe and all the people he sold his royalty licenses to. And Singer. Yes. And then in on July 29th of 1853, two advertisements ran on the same page of the New York Daily Tribune. I will read the first one. It says, The Sewing Machine. It has been recently decided by the United States court that Elias Howe Jr. of number 305 Broadway was the originator of the sewing machines now extensively used. Call at his office and see 40 of them in constant use upon cloth, leather, etc., and judge for yourselves as to their practicality. Also see a certified copy from the records of the United States courts of the injunction against Singer's machine, so-called, which is conclusive. You that want sewing machines, be cautious how you purchase them of others than him or those licensed under him, else the law will compel you to pay twice over. Right. 
So at that point, there was an injunction against Singer's Machine. It was kind of like being put on hold, but the suit had not settled yet. Yes. And then there is the other ad that ran. Which is the Singer ad. Mm Mm-hmm. The Singer ad said, sewing machines. For the last two years, Elias Howe Jr. of Massachusetts has been threatening suits and injunctions against all the world who make, use, or sell sewing machines. We have sold many machines, are selling them rapidly, and have good right to sell them. The public do not acknowledge Mr. Howe's pretensions, and for the best reasons. One, machines made according to Howe's patent are of no practical use. He tried several years without being being able to introduce one. Two, it is notorious, especially in New York, that Howe was not the original inventor of the machine combining the needle and shuttle, and that his claim to that is not valid. Finally, we make and sell the best sewing machines. It all sounds so polite, but it's so snarky. It's really snarky, and it's so different from what we think of in ads today. Yeah. It's not at all what you would expect to see with two companies that are in in competition, feud with one another. Uh, and how went after Singer for libel? Because, you know, Singer at that point was not just saying that they were selling machines, but that Howe was wrong and that he didn't invent these things. And these were all, you know, part of a an ongoing legal battle. So they kind of were really playing fast and loose with language. You'll notice that Howe's is very careful to only say things that are accurate and true and like, come and see the certificate we have from the government, but not, at no point does he say, you know, and Singer's an idiot, or that he's, right. he's trying to steal ideas. Like, he, it's very carefully worded, whereas Singer's is a little more yeah, blustery. Singer's, Singer's is like, this guy's a liar and he's stupid. Yeah, so that's why Howe went after Singer for libel. And the New York Daily Tribune as well. There is also a, a story about Scientific American kind of printing there, like, Okay, the libel thing against the paper is a little silly, you guys. Like, they kind of would post these opinions on the state of affairs periodically, which is kind of interesting. Singer kind of went on a personal crusade to discredit Howe's claim to rights on the sewing machine. He would seek out machines and inventors that predated Howe's work to try to prove that what Howe did was not original. He went to Europe and even China, and the problem was the wording of Howe's patent. He had patented the combination of the shuttle and the eye-pointed needle, not just the invention of a particular element of the machine. So his patent claim was pretty accurate. Nobody had patented that process. All these different pieces of it had been patented, but not all put together. Correct. So eventually, Singer even colluded with Walter Hunt. Remember him from earlier on? Uh, He made a machine and never patented it. He uh, he brought in engineer William Whiting, Singer did, to help resurrect Hunt's design because Hunt apparently found old pieces of the machine like in an attic but couldn't actually get them all together and working anymore. He couldn't quite remember how it all went. Uh, but so this engineer assisted him and then Hunt attempted to file for patent on his 1834 invention to establish that he and not Elias Howe had in fact invented the sewing machine. Again, the Scientific American kind of made their opinion known. They published a rather scathing commentary on Hunt's assertions, calling them, quote, rusty claims. Uh, And a trial at the patent office followed. And after hundreds of pages of testimony, like Singer found everybody he could to kind of feed 
uh, Hunt's case because he really wanted to take down Howe any way he could. Uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of pages in a long drawn out trial, but patent commissioner Charles Mason ruled in favor of Howe on May 24th, 1854. And he said that, uh, Mason said that Hunt's loss was due in part to the 18 years he sat on his design. Uh, and Hunt actually appealed to the circuit court of the District of Columbia claiming that Mason didn't really have the authority to make such a ruling, but Mason's ruling was upheld by the court. So, spurred by the success of this decision, and still in a big fight with Singer, Howe decided that the next thing he would do was file suits against every establishment selling Singer machines in Boston, and ask for preliminary injunctions to shut down those sales. Uh, Hunt's previous invention was invoked by those named in the suits, claiming, no, no, there's still some doubt, even though there had been a ruling already, as to whether or not Howe really had the rights to all of the machines being sold, And so they tried to, you know, they were dredging up that case that had already been decided. But the judge in the matter still deemed Howe's patents infringed upon, and he found in Howe's favor. So the Boston defendants, who were now in some serious business trouble, they had had their business basically shut down, they turned around and filed suits against Singer for basically kind of dragging them into this mess and giving them patents and machines that they really had no legal right to sell. Right. Singer and Howe eventually settled their suit, and they announced they had done so in Scientific American in August of 1854, which should have settled the matter, but it did not at all. No. Uh, the, the piece did not last for very long. Um, now that he was in control of the sewing machine industry, Howe started working on improvements to his own machine. But this resulted in a lot of the companies he had gone after suing him for patent infringement, since many of them held patents on the basic improvements that he was trying to implement. There's just no end to the litigation. There's really not. In 1856, the president of Grover and Baker, which was one of the companies involved in these suits against Howe, uh, the president's name was Orlando B. Potter, and he proposed an interesting truce a concept which became known as a combination. Not to be confused with the undergarment of the same name, a patent combination. And he kind of took a step back and realized, we are all just hurting ourselves at this point. We are wadded up in litigation all the time, and we are holding up production and just throwing money into legal actions. What we would rather be doing is making and selling sewing machines. Right. So he sort of said, let's do that. Yeah. They all joined forces. Uh, Potter's company, Howe, Wheeler, Wilson and Company, and Singer all joined forces. They pooled their patents to make one unified combination patent for sewing machine. Uh, and Howe was pretty resistant to this idea at first because he felt like he was giving up more than anybody else in order to get this deal together. But he eventually relented. Um, he only agreed to join the sewing machine combination, which is sometimes called the sewing machine ch- trust, if the other parties agreed to stipulations. And those stipulations were uh, pretty astute business moves. One was uh, how would get a $5 royalty on every machine sold in the U.S. and a dollar for every machine that was exported to another country. And it's estimated that between 1856, when this deal was struck, and 1867, when Howe's patent expired, he made more than $2 million. Which is, there, there are several layers of, that's crazy. One <laughs> is the $2 million. We're talking about, you know, $2 million 1860s dollars. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he was so invested in all this litigation when his patent was on the verge of expiring. I mean, part of this is, is of course, he had to do it then, because otherwise he would have lost everything. And then part of it 
makes me kind of go, I probably would have thrown up my hands much earlier when I was getting that close to the expiration of a patent. But you would have missed out on $2 million. I know. I'm a terrible business person. But in 1867, when House patent was up, so after his 11 years of enjoying all of that money coming in, uh, he did request another extension of the patent, but he was refused. And he actually died later that year. Uh, Singer, of course, we know because his name is still on sewing machines sold all the time, was an astute businessman and he really made a name for himself in that industry. Uh, I feel like we should do another podcast on the Singer family because there is a world of fascination in the things that happened there. But that's how it eventually settled. There was a lot of biting and fighting and clawing. And then a settlement, and then a little more biting and fighting and clawing, and then some person that steps forward and says, this is really stupid. We could all be making money. So let's go make money now. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad that they finally came to that. Me too. Because sewing machines are awesome. How would I have all my sewing machines otherwise? I know. How would I have learned how to make nightgowns and pajamas and things. I don't know why nightgowns and pajamas are the things that I thought of, but you know, my mom, my mom taught me how to make easy things. I didn't learn how to put a zipper in until I was much older and oh. no longer living with my mom. Oh. Bustle gowns. We wouldn't be able to make bustle gowns to look like we lived in the time when these people were fighting. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't until we were, uh, I was looking at your outline for the podcast that it really dawned on me how similar umbrellas and corsets are to one another. I kind of had that moment as well, where I was like, oh, yeah, there's a casing and uh-huh. then a firm element that goes through it. Yeah, that does make total and sense. And it's all kind of stretched tight together over a frame. Yeah. Like, that's really, they're the same thing, just in a different orientation. In different shapes. So... I believe you have some listener mail for us. I do. Uh, the first one, I won't read the whole email, but it is from our listener, Alan, and he points out, oh, boo-boo. Uh, when we were doing the Al Swearingen episode, at one point I misspoke and I said 1893 when I should have said 1863 regarding, uh, I believe, the Battle of Helena. And it's because I typed it wrong because my brain sometimes rotates those numerals because they look so similar. So my apologies uh, to anyone who got confused and went, wait, we jumped 30 years because we didn't. Uh, the other email that I have is from our listener, Zoe, and she says, Dear ladies, the story of the kitten wedding from the Taxidermy podcast reminded me of a challenge my writing teacher once posted to my school's creative writing club. For some reason, a good proportion of stories and poems that we come up with are quite dark. Eventually, my teacher got so fed up with the angsty sob stories that he challenged us to write The Puppy Wedding. The main guideline was that no animals were to be harmed in the telling of the story. No one as of yet has successfully completed the challenge. Maybe if we change it to kittens, we'll have better luck. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Zoe. That's really cute. Uh, I should also point out several people have written us about, uh, we mentioned at the end of the Taxidermy podcast that there aren't that many movies about taxidermy. And several people mentioned Dinner for Schmucks, which does include some taxidermy very similar to uh, Walter Potter's work. And I had completely forgotten about it. So thank you to all of them. If you would like to write to us, you may absolutely do so. That email address is historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also hook up with us on Twitter at Missed in History or at Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff. If you want to learn more about what we have talked about today and get some really good visuals on how these machines we've been talking about and trying to describe actually work, you can go to our website and type in sewing in the search bar and you'll actually get how sewing machines work. And that article has some uh, cool animated illustrations that will show you exactly how threads pass uh, back and forth using a shuttle and with a chain stitch. And you can look at that and almost anything else on our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 
This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Audible. <laughs> 